right, hello everyone, and welcome back for another fantastic episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm, as always, Nell Shamrell Harrington. I am uh, calling in, well, not calling in, I am recording this from Seattle, though I was in Australia for DevOps talks last week. I uh, had a fantastic time both with the great country of Australia and the great DevOps community down there. So if anyone is listening from Australia or New Zealand, thank you for welcoming me and hope to see you again soon. And with me as always is my co-host, Scott Nixon. Hello, Scott. Hello. Hey, I'm Scott Nixon. Uh, I run Cloud Mechanics, which is a DevOps consultancy. I've just been riding my mountain bike a lot this summer and not doing too much traveling. So, but uh very excited to talk about DevOps and Agile today. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. Awesome. Well, let's let's dive into it. And let's start off with, I think, a little bit of a review, a review of Agile. So... Agile came out of the Scrum movement. What I remember is there, there was the Scrum approach to software, and then the people who led that all got together. I think it was, wasn't it in Bend, Oregon? Uh, it, was, it was somewhere in there. Yeah. And uh, they came up with the Agile Manifesto and the Agile Principles together. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where it was, where, they, where that happened. I, I've actually, I've seen a, a video talk of one of the guys that was there whenever it happened. So that's all. I don't even remember where that was. So. Yeah. Oh, it came out of the Extreme Programming Project. And okay. in the year 2000, the leaders of that project met in Oregon. I don't have written down what city in Oregon it was, which probably doesn't matter to a lot of people besides yeah, the two of yeah, us because we're in yeah. the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Uh, but they met in Oregon and, uh, and talked. And then in 2001, they met again in Utah. And that's where they wrote the Agile Manifesto along with the Agile Principles. And let me pull up the Agile Manifesto here. Uh, it's nice and short so we can read it. Uh, we are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. Through this work, we have come to value individuals and interaction over process and tools, working software over comprehensive documentation, customer collaboration over contract negotiation, and responding to change over following a plan. That is, while there's value on the items on the right, we value the items on the left more. And what I think this really kind of illustrates is, I sometimes, yeah, I was on the phone with the Marine major recently, and uh, he was asking me about agile development. He said, what do you think of when you think of agile and scrum? And I said, I think that those words tend to be overused. Um, the, what the manifesto and such, what it really highlights is it's not nearly as dogmatic, I think, as some people believe it is. Hmm. Uh, it is a suggested way and it's a set of values for writing software, but it's not necessarily a you must do this if you're doing it other, any other way, you're doing it wrong. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I, I was reviewing, I, I've done some writing on this that I've not published on the internet, but it's stuff that I wrote. I've written some stuff down about this. So I figured I would share it. I was saying that like agile is kind of a, I think it's a more of like a philosophical system for, you know, software folks. Um, and, you know, and because it's kind of like this open sourcey philosophy, there's more like room for interpretation. And it's it, when you compare it to something like Six Sigma or ITEL or these things that are very like structured and they've, they've literally set down like these core processes and things that are, you know, that are like the foundations of that thing. And I think, you know, it's agile, you know, you will see it all, you, that word used all over the place, but you don't actually know what agile looks like within say each different organization that's, that's kind of talking about it. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, you know, a little challenging at times, but I think if you just focus on the principles, then it kind of can get everybody onto the same page. And I like to joke, I did some agile focus training once and I called it agility training. Uh, like what they, what, 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 what pets do uh, yeah. to make them move yeah. faster, which I guess it's kind of what we software engineers or whoever goes through it, we're, we're trying to move faster in a safe way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, you know, there's also like, I've, I've wanted to try to find some, some research around this, but like, one of the things is that it came out of me looking at like how AB testing often works where, um, you know, you have, you know, you run some test and maybe you need somewhere like 30 or 60 days to get through this test. And the whole point of this test is to learn. Right. And, and it's very obvious with AB testing because you're literally looking for like a winner. Um, and I think with software and, and, and changes, any kind of changes you make to your product and your business, it's a little less obvious unless you're like literally measuring everything and spending all this time analyzing things. And, and I, I guess the, the, I'm trying to bring it back to this point that realistically, like in A-B testing, they get that they need to move fast and make, and do lots of tests and do, and iterate quickly. And I think that if it's not as always obvious to business owners that like the business needs to be making lots of tests and lots of, and lots of, and learning really quickly, because that's the only way that you can kind of stay competitive. You know, if, if some, competitor of yours brings out the, the next greatest feature, you know, for the future of that pro of that type of product. And it takes you two years to, to get your version out. It is going to hurt you, you know, and I have real world examples, but I've been talking for a long time. So I'm going to nail talk. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. It, it's very true. I mean, we still, a lot of companies I think today even are still discovering that the practices that worked 40, 50 years ago, where they made one thing, they did it really, really well, and just made it the same way for how, however long, they, it doesn't work anymore. And that, that's been the case, I mean, that was the case when the Agile Manifesto was written, that's the case when extreme programming principles were come, were come up with. I mean, that, that's been the case for a while, but it's something, it still feels like a brave new world, even you know, decades uh, after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I don't, I, I don't typically find people, you know, like I said, because this is very philosophical, if you're not like invested in the, philos the, the, the philosophy, I think in a lot of ways, you don't talk about it or think about it or you, you know, like I will at times use the, some of these principles um, whenever I'm trying to defend like a position or like, you know, if, if, you know, in a 
when I'm in a situation where we're like trying to like slow down or take too much time for something, like I try to say, well, let's try to, what is the smallest amount of something that we can do to learn, you know? Right. That's, it's, it's a lot of experimentation and small focused experiments are, are how you figure out what works and what doesn't in a, in a timely fashion. Mm-hmm. I was thinking we'd also maybe go through quickly through the 12 principles behind the Agile Manifesto. Uh, one, is, one is our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Continuous delivery, that mm-hmm. phrase kind of jumps out at me coming from a DevOps background. Two, we welcome changing requirements, even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. I think that's that's what we were just talking about. Yeah, valuing basically valuing learning and continuous improvement over maintaining what we currently have. Yeah. Yep. Uh, three, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months, with a preference to the shorter time scale. I think the key words there are working software. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And that, that, that sounds harsher than I mean it. Um, but, you know, I've been on projects where the code was beautiful. It was very elegant. Uh, it was a good idea, but it, it just didn't work at the mm. level the, the business needed to. And un- unfortunately, I, the, what you deliver, it, it does have to work. It doesn't really matter how much thought and how much work into it if it doesn't work at that fundamental level. Yeah, definitely. Uh, four, business people and developers must work together daily through the project. Uh, this also sounds very familiar to me. Yeah. I, 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 the, the comment I will make about this is that one of the biggest challenges I've experienced um, working with business people is oftentimes they imagine, I don't know, a workflow or a set of features that either are super difficult, expensive, or time inefficient to kind of create. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've, so I, I actually have an example related to a, when I ran a business with my wife and it was, uh, you know, if, if we wanted to integrate into Facebook, using Facebook groups to manage, say, a community, and we want to add and remove people automatically with, through like, an, say, an API. And what we found was is that Facebook just doesn't want you to, to automate that. They, they want... Mm-hmm there's just very limited ability to kind of automatically add and remove. Even if you have the customer, like the Facebook's customer ID and maybe their email, it's just not, they don't want that kind of automation set up with the Facebook groups. And so it's, you know, even though the business folks wanted that, it just was, there was no way to automate it. And so you either fill it, figure out a manual process for it or you do something else. Cool. Uh, number five, build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Trust is a big factor in agile. I've noticed. Yeah. And it probably starts with having somebody who's, you know, having people that are leading these, you know, these teams that are trusted by, you know, kind of management that they know that these people, if they're in this, involved in this team, they're going to deliver. Right. And the engineers need to trust that their manager, if someone comes with a ridiculous request, uh, that they will say no or that they will at least push back on it uh, in order to keep the, the project going. So trust has to be there for this to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation. Now, this is, an, well, this is one that I think has evolved a little bit now that we have such a highly remote uh, working mm-hmm. force culture. I mean, Zoom calls and such, we still do those face-to-face. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I think our tools have evolved uh, since this was written uh, yeah. to, you know, we have things like Slack where it's much easier to uh, hold conversations. We have things like GitHub where we can hold asynchronous yeah. conversations. So the conversations still need to happen, uh, yeah. but I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, 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 I can imagine in certain organizations like Google and folks that don't really allow remote work that they, if they are big into these agile principles that they may be like remote work violates this principle or something like that. And I, I think um, I actually was having a conversation earlier today with somebody about remote work and um, productivity and, and, and my general feeling is that to do, to do remote work, you have to be more organized than if you're going to be in an office. Mm -hmm. And because yes, you can ping people on Slack and stuff like that. But I think that um, in general, it, you just have to, you have to, you have to improve your personal development productivity skills to, to do remote work well. So something I found from organizations that have a mix of remote and in office workers is when one employee is remote, the entire company needs to change. Mm -hmm. uh, just, just one means you need to change how you communicate. And as you get more remote workers, you, you need to do the same thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So there's more to it than uh, working from home in your pajamas. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Number seven, working software is the primary measure of progress. I think uh, we, we covered that earlier. Yeah. If you, just because you have a bunch of committed code that's not in production, you know, doesn't mean you, you know, you're not, you haven't delivered value to the customer. Mm -hmm. Eight, agile processes produce sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. So I'm hearing a crunch time is a no uh, with, with this. <laughs> Sustainable is, is key. And, you know, it's funny because I don't know that until you've, until you've worked in, in an environment where you, you know, like you're pushed and you're burnt out and stuff like that, you don't, I don't know, I think unless there's a conversation around sustainability and stuff like that, I think it can, can create these environments where people would burn out and, and, and mm -hmm. not, you know, kind of, I, I don't always love the the, the phrase work-life balance, but I mean, it's it's definitely a, an important thing and it looks different for everyone. Something I was very surprised by when I gave my talk at DevOps Talks, it was about uh, open source governance at massive scale. And I think that's a whole topic for another uh, podcast episode. But at the end, I mean, one of my duties of open source governance is avoiding burnout yourself and avoiding pushing others into burnout. Hmm. And so I told my personal story with that, which involves burnout manifesting uh, physically in horrific ways. We'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many people came up to me after the talk, including these really, I, I, don't, I don't like this phrase, but these really kind of macho guys uh, telling me how much they appreciated that I shared that because they had experienced mm -hmm. the exact same thing. So yeah. it's, it's something that, that's been a problem for a while. And we're, we're definitely coming to a reckoning on it, I believe. 
And in my personal experience, a lot of times when you're working on a team and the team is kind of burnt from just overwork too much time, I, I think in my experience, a lot of times it's about like organization and being like clear project planning has, has been neglected. And I, I've, I've seen a lot of things around this is, you know, like you should see these things coming. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, let's see here. Number nine, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. I'm using that as a vocal warm-up uh, yeah. next time I give a talk, but it yeah. is very, very true. Yeah. And so that means, you know, you know, doing the full suite of tests and code reviews and making sure, you know, you can still deploy software quickly and this, you know, the same day and deploy it the same day it's written. You're just, you have to still make sure you're you have to have those good processes that are making sure that that code that goes out doesn't break stuff. And if it does break, it rolls back automatically. Yeah. Move fast and break things is not an agile principle. (laughs) (laughs) Or any principle you really should live by. Uh, All right. Number 10, simplicity. The art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the best code is no code, right? Right. I think it, 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 you know, highlights the, the need for focus in what you're building. Uh, I think I, I was reading an essay by Joel Spolsky, I think, or someone like that. And they talked about a program from the 90s called Microsoft Bob. Yeah. And number one, its name didn't really tell you what it was. There, there was a bald guy on the, the cover. Uh, yeah. But it, it kind of did everything and nothing at the same time because it didn't have a focus on what it was supposed to do. Yeah. No one knew how to use it. And yeah. if people don't use your software, I'm not going to say it doesn't count at all, but it, it counts much less than if people do use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Number 11, the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. Yeah. I mean, I don't, ha- it's funny because this one is the one that's hardest for me to, it's like, I, I, you know, what is your experience with self-organizing teams? I, you know, I think of open source, honestly, when I hear yeah. self-organizing teams, uh, in that it's mainly people, people, for people who are doing it on their own time, there are a lot of people, myself included, who do open source and are paid well for it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who do it on their own time, it is kind of a self-organizing team in that it's people who have interest yes, uh, in it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's, and it's kind of funny because it's like, I've just never been in an organization where I had, like, I just seen people like somebody starts some new project and then all of a sudden people from other teams are like asking to go to that team to do this development. I've just never been in an organization where that's happened. So <laughs> I'd yeah. like to see that. It'd be neat. So Yeah. You never want your organization to be one where there's one team that does like all the cool projects and then another team is stuck with the maintenance of everything yeah. that already exists. Uh, no one wants to be a code janitor. Well, it's funny because like that's a long, that's what Microsoft has done for a long time. I don't know if they're still doing it where they would literally do all the active development in one place and then whenever it was gold shipped, then it, then, then it basically got all transitioned to some other team, which is a funny way to do things, but yeah. Yeah, we, we tried feature teams at Chef a few years ago. Uh, where you know we would assemble a team just for the length, you know, anywhere from six weeks to a few months of making a new feature, and then that we would disassembled. It didn't work mainly because once you launch the feature or launch the new product, it's not done. There's going to need to be maintenance on it, and particularly right after you launch it, that's when mm-hmm. you're going to be getting the most bug reports uh, as yeah. people are trying it out and trying it within their workflows. Yeah, yeah, 
definitely. Yeah. All right, number 12. At regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior on, accordingly. So I think of uh, retrospectives uh, when yeah. I see this. Definitely. Yeah, documenting. I mean, I, I, I oftentimes like to think of things like you start with a hypothesis, you know, based on customer feedback. And then at the end, like after it's been deployed and people have used it, you know, what are, you know, obviously at some level, this is talking about maybe just right after you deployed it. But, you know, for me, I think it's also important to look something in 30, 60, 90 days to see where you are and see if like, see how much change. I mean, I think it's a really, it's just a very fun learning exercise to do, you know, you know, yeah, I, I definitely have shipped things and was like, wow, that just did not turn out the way I expected it to. Something I found through very hard experience is uh, when we have a retrospective and something did not go as well or as well as we expected it to saying, oh, well, it'll be better next time uh, because we have the knowledge now on how to avoid it uh, or because these certain circumstances will be different next time. Uh, you, you do need to address it head on, mm -hmm. I've, I've found. I mean, there are, I mean, I remember when one of my offices had to shut down for the day because the fire alarm went off uh, in the building. I mean, that's something obviously you don't have much control over, but if it's something organizational or teamwork wise or planning wise, it, unless you address it head on as a result of those retrospectives, it is still going to be a problem uh, in, yeah. the, in the next project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, one of my, one of the things that I've definitely seen that I think in general needs to be more emphasized is having tech folks having more conversations with customers mm -hmm. and actually like, I mean, yeah, you can see things that people have written or things that maybe product managers have interviewed folks and then you review that. But, you know, I think it really changes. It gives them a little, it gives you a little more empathy when you actually talk to customers who are doing, using the things that you're doing and, you know, if you actually sit there and watch people, what they call shoulder surf. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell people sometimes about the time I was checking into an airline. I'm not going to say which one it was on the air, uh, but I was doing the electronic check-in and they were asking me a bunch of questions. I hit yes, 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 yes. And then it asked, are you carrying any dangerous items? Of course I hit yes, because I had just done. <laughs> That. And so it wouldn't give me my boarding pass. It spit out this receipt telling me, please go see the someone, an agent at the ticket counter. So I went up to the agent. And I said, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Uh, and she said, no, you're the third one in 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so th they did fix it eventually, but I'm wondering if they had to watch people using it and see, oh, we don't think carefully about every single question we're answering, especially when we're tired yeah. uh, and going through an airline check-in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because I think that that's one of those patterns where they're trying to see if you're paying attention, you know, that's I, a good point. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I don't know. <laughs> I think all airlines do that. And I do, I think yep. they use this dark pattern of, of yes, yes, yes. And then you have to say no as something that, I don't know. I feel like everybody does it. Right. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, those are the basics of Agile and how it connects to DevOps. I did a talk a few years ago on uh, the history of DevOps and where the movement as we know it really started was in 2007, the father of DevOps, as he's known in some circles, Patrick Dubois, was working in IT and he had to straddle the connection between Dev and Ops. And in 2008, he presented a project called Agile Operation and Infrastructure, How Infra Agile Are You? So it was taking agile principles of software development and applying them to the infrastructure that runs the software. 
And he laid out uh, three layers of agile infrastructure. And the first was technical, which is the hardware and software that is used in the environment. Mm -hmm. Then there's the project layer, which is the process that introduces changes into the environment. And then there's the operations layer, which is the process of keeping the environment working. So there's these three layers. And what I always like to highlight when I present this is the technology part is only one factor of it. It's really the easiest part. The processes and maintaining these processes and the cultural elements are much harder. Yeah. Like what happens whenever, you know, there's some major system error, like does it recover automatically? Do people get alerted? And it's like, I mean, you have to, you know, like, and a lot of times with alerting, you know, you squash, you know, you like don't respond or trigger all alerts unless it happens multiple times or something. Cause maybe, you know, you just get these fluke things every once in a while. I mean, there's just so much complexity to how you filter and bubble up that information. So. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clavo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. So we, we were talking about how you know DevOps and Agile, it's not necessarily about the tools themselves. It's about the way you use those tools. And it really, both of them are really at that, that tricky intersection of humanity and technology. Uh, we can only build technology, effective technology together if we relate to each other as humans mm -hmm. and understand what the, uh, the, the problem we're trying to solve. There was a article uh, talking about Craig McClucky, or maybe he wrote it on, in Kubernetes. And in it, he was uh, discussing how the problem in Kubernetes is people have become too focused on the technology for technology's sake. And they've lost sight of the business problems that that technology is supposed to solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Right. So yeah, it's you know it's it's very related to how we treat each other when we're using this technology, and it it also highlights you know technology is going to be a part of humanity uh, for from now on, I believe. And you know even if we have a giant power outage or something, people are going to have generators. People are, we, we've experienced the technological world and there's always going to be a desire to keep at least the good elements of it, uh, how we connect with each other. And the whole point of things like infrastructure technology, the technologies DevOps tends to deal with is how we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and it, I think one of the things I often want to reach for whenever I'm, when I'm in the process of trying to kind of organize around like new feature or like whenever I'm trying to new, do new development or, you know, work with a team is that um, I always want, like my instinct is to want to add a lot of like process and want to like, like really kind of like plan out like what all these features are and stuff like that. But ultimately I know that in, in my experience, it's better to start off 
with just like the smallest thing that I'm trying to solve. And then just to work through that because it's so easy. Anybody who's made like massive to-do lists know that it's really easy to give yourself like a hundred to-do lists, but it's really hard to do all that work because maybe every to-do is one to five hours worth of work. And so the same thing happens with software development is that you can literally just imagine, you know, infinite possibilities and things that you can do. And so, um, it, you know, a lot of that is just editing. Where I've seen that especially is when I've gone into controlled environments like banks or uh, I was on site at a national security contractor a few years ago. And they have this very visceral reaction to Agile. And it's not that they're stuck in their ways or anything. It's that the environment they operate in is so controlled and the consequences are so huge if something goes wrong. Uh, they can't necessarily afford to be moving as fast or they have to move fast, but within their constraints. Like I remember at the time I was on site with the contractor, uh, the Apache 5 was approved for use in their environment. Apache 6 was not. Uh, and there was nothing we could do about that because it had to go through a formal approving process. What we could do was work within those constraints and, okay, we have to use Apache 5 with this. What can we build with it that will fit this business problem? And how fast can we build it within these restraints? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I often like, I often like constraints like that. I mean, it's sometimes it, whenever you go into a blue ocean problem of like, oh, I need to solve this problem. You start looking around there and there's 20 different pieces of software you could use to solve this problem. I mean, whew, it can get overwhelming and it, you know, you can literally spend days and days just trying to figure out what to use. I mean, imagine if you tried to do a, like a quick demo of every monitoring tool that exists on the uh, market, you know, you just, or even every Kubernetes tool. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, there's probably at least uh, a half dozen service layer technologies that you could use within Kubernetes, you know, and here, this is all like brand new stuff and there's already six options, you know. So here's a question for you. Uh, do you think it's possible for a company to operate agilely, agility, agile, operate in an agile or DevOps fashion and still have kind of prescriptive solutions for certain for certain situations, uh, to to go more more in detail, uh, let me figure out what I was talking about. I mean, you know, the idea. I think we we when we think of agile, we think of building something from scratch because we're building you know just enough to uh, just enough to get value, get feedback on. Then we build just enough more. Then we build just enough more. How do you think that comes into a non-greenfield project, like a brownfield project, or a lot of legacy code? Uh, is it possible to operate in an agile fashion in that kind of environment? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I think the difference is is that you have to make sure that, or realistically, the people kind of at the management level and even the you know, technical level need to be, need to understand the value of, of, of how like shipping things quickly and learning really is more, is, is, has a lot of value and that, and I really think that, I mean, like DevOps really owes a lot of its kind of philosophy and, and the kind of the scientific backing to kind of lean manufacturing. And so if we constantly kind of go back and forth between those two to make the analogy and, you know, it, cause it's not obvious if you have a bunch, if you have a bunch of like weeks and months worth of time and 
tons of code sitting in a repository somewhere. It's not real obvious that you have this work in progress. This you have, yeah, they, you basically have assets that are basically not being used and not, you know, and so you just have all this money tied up, so to speak, because it's it's a very different thing because it's non it's not tangible and it um, they don't you know, it's just, it's harder for them to see that they've got, that they're, they've spent all this money on it, but it's not in the customer's hand. And, and so that you really have to work through a lot of the, the, you know, some of the things like we talked about is just about how quickly can you get value? How quickly can you learn? You know, I think, I think moving, it's funny because it's almost like a, it's almost like a cliche that like, you know, software and Silicon Valley and all this is, is about like, you know, you know, moving fast and breakneck speed and stuff like that. But underlying in that there's actually, you know, manufacturing has taught us that there's real value in that quick adaptability that, you know, the fact that like, even before you're about to deploy something, maybe you want to make changes, you know, with the day before, you know, that, you know, they just, you know, like, I don't know. I just think it's, it's, it's harder to conceptualize on its own, like just with software. If, but if you look into somewhere else where you have these very concrete things, it makes it easier. Right. I remember I, a job I worked where I was asked to add in a piece of functionality to the project. And I discovered there was a thousand line method that I needed to somehow safely change in order to add this functionality. And what I did was I went to my manager and said, I cannot add this in a safe uh, way when we have this thousand line method, there's just too much, I can't test it, one. And two, there's just too much risk to it because all of our core functionality is in this one method. I need to take some time to refactor this uh, in order to be able to add more functionality to it in order to be able to move faster in the future. I tried to do that in any big scale refactoring, I do like that. I try to do it in sort of an agile fashion that I you know teased out just a little bit of it and test it, uh, merge that in, uh, see if see even if I see if my test missed something, get feedback on it and continue doing it. So I mean it's it's a progressive way of doing the refactoring. However, my manager was thrilled once that was done with how fast we were able to add functions uh, to it and how we were able to experiment with it and iterate on it without causing downtime for our customers. So the, the value was shown over the long term, but it is sometimes hard to uh, say, you know, I need to take time to fix this. And the way you do that is through tying it to a business outcome. Uh, yeah. Every business wants to be able to add new functionality without necessarily causing downtime mm -hmm. and showing that this will add to that ability. It, it goes, it goes a long way with, with many managers. Yeah. And, and a lot of all, but with many. Well, and a lot of that is if, if your manager has been a developer before, they understand what it's like to encounter something like that. And so they can be empathetic and that empathy allows them to, you know, extend that, you know, that time and, and the, the effort to, to make the things better. Good. Uh, well, I think we're coming kind of to the natural close of this conversation. Uh, I'm okay with ending a bit early. Uh, shall we go to picks? Let's do it. All right, my first pick is The Great British Baking Show. I've actually been watching it for a while. Uh, my wife just finished law school and just passed the Washington State Bar Exam. Nice. And for years, our go-to de-stress show has been a great British baking show. Yeah. It's, it's something that, and the Brits do this really well, it manages to be very engaging while also being soothing. Like, I don't feel hyped up 
uh, whenever I watched it. And it was a good way just to give our minds a break and give the stress a little bit break and watch, uh, you know, very nice people making uh, baked goods. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and then got lovely accents too. They do have lovely accents. It's, 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 yeah, it's part of what makes it so soothing. It's in a, you know, a, a garden in the, the British countryside and it's fun. Uh, my second pick, and I posted about this on Twitter today. So I have been using the Kinesis Advantage keyboard for a number of years now. It has been a career saver. I am someone who has some severe wrist issues. And uh, I, whenever I use a regular keyboard for more than an hour or so, I start to get numbness uh, and pain in my wrists and in my joints. I do not get that with the Kinesis Advantage. It took a while to learn how to use it. It is a learning curve because this is a different kind of a different layout than most keyboards, but it was 100% worth it. So if you have uh, wrist issues or repeated stress injuries, I highly recommend checking out the Kinesis Advantage keyboard. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So it's funny. So from the great British breaking show, I've only watched an episode or two, but I, but I realized there was somebody on there. I've actually met uh, there's a woman, Prue Lee. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so she was, um, when I worked for the Orient Express Hotel, she was on their board. And so she came to St. Martin one year for one of the events and I, I helped her out one time. So she was a nice lady. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So she, I guess she, she was kind of a, like a big cookbook author and maybe had some TV shows back in, you know, 20, 30 years ago in, in the UK. So she's not somebody necessarily people know in the US that well, but you know, it's a very UK centric show anyway. So, um, so, all right, my pick. Uh, so the book recommendation I'll make this week is A Moment of Lift by Melinda Gates. Uh, I've been kind of a fan of following a lot of what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been doing you know, in general with their philanthropy, a lot of around the stuff, interesting stuff around vaccinations. And, and this book is very much focused on, um, you know, empowering women and, and what those changes make, like how those, you know, changes affect the world. Like, um, Hans Rissling, who's a, was a good friends of theirs. And he's, he's got a lot of great YouTube videos. You know, one of the things they always talk about is like, when you, the, the more you educate women and the more you allow them to to do family planning that it like the they've shown that like it has a huge correlation to like GDP growth of the country. It like literally lifts these countries out of like um, out of like really bad poverty and stuff like that. So I think this book is, it's really fascinating. Um, uh, so that would be a, a strong recommendation for me. Uh, and since I tend to always make really technical recommendations, I, I thought that was a good non-technical under recommendation. Awesome. And if you're looking for other book recommendations, um, I would definitely recommend checking out gate gatesnotes.com, which is Bill Gates's kind of like blog, so to speak. Um, and he has a, he has a specifically a book section that where he makes a bunch of book recommendations. He reads a lot of, a lot of books. And I think I've, I've enjoyed some of the, the suggestions he made. I don't read that many of his, but uh, I know that anybody who reads often is always looking for um, book recommendations and, you know, different varieties of stuff. He's definitely, uh, kind of has a very broad number of uh, recommendations. So as those awesome. are my picks. You, you mentioned the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We had, I think it was their CIO speak at ChefConf a couple of years ago. And what was cool was she spoke about how they use drones. Now drones have a very negative connotation in our society, uh, particularly in our society because they're associated with you know deadly military strikes. However, 
she highlighted that a way they use it is in natural disaster areas or even you know, war areas, any kind of uh, area where there's lots of roads that have been cut off or it's very hard to access. It's really cheap. It's way cheaper than using a helicopter to use a drone to uh, transport medication. Uh, mm -hmm. from one location to the other, to transfer transfer supplies from one location to the other. It was really cool to see how they how they use that uh, in their charitable work. Yeah, and it, I actually, I don't know if it was related to them, but I know that there is a company in Africa now that's doing, or it might be an NGO or something like that, that's using um, drones to deliver blood because that's cool. a big, big problem. And they can they can deliver it like within an hour or something or very, very quickly. So, yeah which is something that's very perishable and, you know. Yeah. And if you need a transfusion, you, you need it right then. Yeah. Uh, usually. Yeah. yeah they usually can't wait. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's very well, cool. Well, thank you for joining me today, uh, Scott. And thank you everyone, all of our listeners for joining us and we will see you or, or at least talk to you in our next episode. Have a great day. All right. Everyone. Goodbye everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.